Welcome to Conscious Collaboration, the premier show for authentic discussions with growth-oriented leaders. Hello, my name is Josh Bayer, and I'm hosting today's episode of Collaborative Coaching's Conscious Collaboration podcast. We talk with a variety of guests here about what helps leaders and teams to accomplish the great and worthy goals that none of us alone can accomplish. And that's always a lot easier said than done. And for those of you who are new to this podcast, just a quick reminder why we're here and how this works. So each month, my partner and co-founder, Yael Sivi, and I interview a leader, a coach or consultant, an entrepreneur or an HR practitioner to discuss what leaders and teams can actually do to co-create collaboration that's more than coordinated effort, but actually really delivers all the goods, all the promises of collaboration, like creative problem solving, productivity, fun, but also work that leads to personal and professional growth. And we invite people whose work and wisdom we appreciate in regard to collaboration and so it's my special pleasure today to introduce my guest, David Sibbett. Welcome, David. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. So it is really nice to have you on board. I came across your work um, probably about two years ago. So you are just a quick intro. Um, I want to hear more from you. But basically, you've been working for a number of decades, really, at this point, helping people to transform their ability to communicate and to collaborate in groups. And you are doing and approaching this kind of work in a variety of ways, one of which is visual facilitation. Uh, you are indeed one of the pioneers of the field. There are a lot of books out there for those of you who want to check this out. And you're also really a facilitator, a process consultant, and one of the co-authors of the Drexler Civit team performance system or team performance model, of which I want to speak more later. But my first question, David, really is, how did you get here? Like, what were some meaningful milestones on your own professional journey to get to really doing this work the way you do it today? Well, the turning point came, I was doing leadership development in San Francisco for an organization called Coro that did immersive education, experiential education for nine months for a cohort of 12 people. And I was lucky enough to go through that program. And then they hired me back on the staff. And we would send people out to uh, be in internships and in government, like they'd be at the police department in the mayor's office and the Department of Public Works and places like that. And then they'd come back together on Fridays to make sense out of what they were experiencing. Hmm. And six weeks after that, they would join a political campaign. Then they would go to a labor union and then they would go to a business. So I spent eight years doing that kind of work and organizing these seminars and getting people to try to learn from their own experience next door to a company that was pioneering facilitation for business. And this was in the 1970s. And at the time, facilitators were mostly doing psychological groups and looking at that kind of thing, but not, it wasn't a norm in business. And interaction associates believed that if people could learn to work like designers, they would get better results. And so they were really at the ground floor of this whole design thinking movement. Which has really taken off in recent years. Yeah, Very much so. And we were next door and began to absorb their methods. And I happen to be very good at drawing. And so I started into integrating a lot of visual work in the yeah. interaction method and 
1977, set up my own company. Okay. And when you saw their work, like what was the inkling that you had about the potential of this? Like how could this be useful? You must have had a hunch there. Well, the Coro organization was really trying to get people to look at public affairs and the way cities work as whole systems. And believe it or not, there was a time back then when people did not even uh -huh. talk about systems thinking. That was a, a real side concern of cyberneticists and people like that. But people in the Peace Corps were starting to learn how to, they were learning how to train people experientially to go to other countries. And people in community organizing, if you remember the 60s and 70s were pretty full of a lot of challenging <laughs> and lots of different things. Transformative, so to speak. And there was a consciousness movement going on in the Bay Area that had lots of ramifications. Hmm. And so we were quite convinced, and I was quite convinced, that in order to deal with the problems that we had, you had to collaborate, you had to work together, and you had to be able to see things from different points of view. Yeah. So the point of this experiential program was to get people to walk in people's other people's shoes long enough that they could begin empathizing with them and understand what's going on. Uh-huh. So you're giving me a segue here, and I, I will want to take it, um, because in a way I look at you really, I, I started to read more and more of your articles and, and got more acquainted with your work. And I think you're somewhat of a Renaissance man. So there are probably a lot of conversations we could be had that we could have way more than the 30 minutes allow here. So my angle really is conscious collaboration. And you and I spoke earlier when we, mm -hmm. you know, set up the possibility to have you on the show, basically revealed, like I have a premise and we here at collaborative coaching have a premise that collaboration really isn't a thing or isn't a method that you kind of, you know, you just hash out the detail and then you set it and forget it and you're done. But it's really, it's an ongoing practice. And so what I wonder, what, what's your thought about that? And particularly, you know, what would collaboration look like if it wasn't conscious? Can there be such a thing as unconscious collaboration? <laughs> oh boy, what a question. Uh, since agreeing to share this uh, time with you, I've been thinking about that. And I realize there are kind of two aspects to it. One is, do people consciously want to collaborate? You know, what's the inner uh -huh. pull toward that? And the other is, how do you actually create conditions where people do collaborate, whether they're aware or not of wanting to? On the wanting to side, it drove me into starting to think about you know, what is driving people to want to collaborate? And a lot of my colleagues, of course, uh, believe that that's really the doorway yeah. toward the future for all kinds of things. Like uh, one colleague recently I was talking to, Mary Jelinas, has done a lot of study of neuroscience. And she said, it's very interesting if you think of history. It used to be that people would, you know, gather together in tribes of like people And the way you survived was supporting each other and oh. banding together. Today, our survival probably depends on learning to work with unlike people. Yeah. Because practically all the problems that we're facing that are really dire are systemic problems. And no one person has their arms around it. So that's one of the drivers is we, we, we really have to collaborate. Uh -huh. And so there are a lot of people who are getting that feeling. 
the wanting to collaborate, I really want to come back to it because it's such a common concern in the field about, you know, people use the word silos or, hey, we want to do a team event that helps us with cross-functional collaboration or people are too focused on their swim lane. They don't necessarily want to collaborate. They don't want to look at the interdependencies no. of their relationships and things. They just want to get their stuff done. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know whether you've studied uh, the neuropsychology much, but David Rock's work mm -hmm. in neuroleadership is kind of interesting. And and he points out that if people feel threatened in a situation, they yeah. pull back. They actually pull back cognitively. And so if people's status is threatened, if their certainty is threatened, if they feel it's too uncertain, if, if their autonomy is threatened, if their sense of relationship is going to be disturbed or fairness isn't uh -huh. being practiced, they pull in. Well, the minute you start trying to collaborate, you're, I mean, the, the word originally uh -huh. meant dealing with the enemy. I mean, the word in, in Europe, I think, if you were a collaborator, that was really <laughs> a bad thing during World War II. And in fact, when I first started consulting and worked in Europe, I couldn't, that word was not well received. That is so interesting. I never thought about, you know, I usually go back to the Latin root of it and just, you know, working together and all that. But that's that's very true that the, the particularly the French used it in a very um, just critical way. Yeah. But that's changed. And but it does mean experiencing the value mm -hmm. of working with people who are different. So I'm actually coming out of an experience that that is pretty interesting, because as you were saying, I've been spending a long time exploring visual facilitation have become very skillful at that but i'm now partnering with a woman who is coming out of humanistic psychology and uh -huh. has done dialogic practice it, uh, kind of in depth without graphics on the wall and we we just finished co-writing a book on visual consulting coming out of the work we've been doing together because we're consciously integrating visual practice with dialogic practice, with change practice, how you do things over long periods of time and actually change organizations. And I will say after having written three books by myself, writing a book co-authoring uh -huh. was stepping into collaboration. Yeah. And I suddenly got a big wake up around, oh my gosh, this is hard. I would add to that. So for those um, of our listeners who aren't familiar. So David Rock, the scarf model, definitely something to look up because there is something in it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to say, oh, when our sense of status is threatened or whatever it is that, that actually um, is, is, no, is an element. It isn't just a choice. It's really that there is an element in our limbic system um, or in the amygdala that literally shuts down our neocortex and our bigger, higher functioning so there is a way in which we have to learn to take responsibility for it, not only in terms of how we take the impact we have on others, but also how do we embrace the difference that you spoke of that has really become a commonplace nowadays. Mm -hmm. I just got all the corrections back for the, for the book and I've been working on it the last couple of days and rereading what we did. Uh -huh. And what's exciting is the place that I was able to go by collaborating was just so much richer yeah. and more interesting than just trying to source this out of my own thinking. In fact, in this particular case, we involved uh, 10 of our colleagues in a series of online exchanges to test the framework, uh -huh. the seven challenges of change framework that we're bringing forward. 
And each one of those calls ended up requiring us to change language, you know, change points that we were making, even though we thought about it very carefully. And I'm beginning to actually prefer that feeling of edginess that comes when you're willing to actually work together. Which is a result of an ability to embrace uncertainty, which is not an easy feat to pull off. No. Well, if you go back and look at Robert Fritz's work, I don't know whether you're familiar with it, but he was one of the people who influenced Peter Senge in the early days. He really believed that systems changed when they were uh, trying to resolve structural tension. And the structural tension in the human psyche is between aspiration and constraint, aspiration and whatever it is you're actually facing. And he argues that artists and creative people are people who have a great amount of tolerance and even appetite for that creative tension. Yeah. Because when you're willing to hold it, the psyche wants to resolve it. And that's where a lot of good ideas start popping out. So the art of working with you, I know you don't want to talk about methodology, but a lot of the methodology is how do you create a safe environment so that people feel okay experiencing the tension that comes from collaboration? Yeah. Oh, and that I'm very happy to go about. You see, part of uh, when we you know, scoped out what, what makes sense on this podcast or not is really what, what I notice And actually, when I look even at my own journey, and and I shared that with you, I started out as a theoretical physicist, and my entire embrace of, like when I started as a junior consultant of change management was basically very um, cognitive and and process-driven. But very quickly, I realized that literally no project that I ever saw worked according, uh, like to schedule, like, you know, it never happened as planned. And it was always human dynamics. Absolutely. And there is really no, at this point, I would argue, and people want that magic bullet, that, that silver bullet. There is no way to not talk about feelings, to not talk about that, that edginess that you mentioned. And so sometimes like, well, wait a minute, before we go to method here, you know, it's like, let's not abuse it to not sit with our edginess. Well, one of the points that we're bringing out in this new book is that the use of self mm-hmm. may be right at the heart of how you actually do change work in that a lot of current research suggests that the humans, that we are, mm-hmm. we are influenced by fields of energy. And, you know, some might even say fields of consciousness, but these fields surround us so that when you walk into a room, a human being walks into a room and one person will be affecting everybody in the room at some level, whether they're conscious of it or not. And the quality of your uh, way of being Uh radiates. You know, there's some people who just light up a room. They are just alive with something. And you could maybe try to analyze it scientifically, but if people just look at their own experience at a party or a meeting or whatever. So one of the things we're trying to get across is that If you just do change work methodologically and technique and think the technique's going to get there, you miss this whole need for people to know that the Uh kind of the psychic field is safe. So if two people start arguing in a meeting and the facilitator gets triggered, the whole meeting can shut down. If if people start arguing and the and suddenly the mediator is able to hold those, 
and and not be confused, but continue to have, mm -hmm. you know, an appetite for this difference. And people relax and they go, oh, you know, it's okay to argue. It's okay to be different. Yeah. And let me break this even out and summarize it because I think it's really at the core of what collab conscious collaboration means. It's it's not just a result of what people are doing. There is something about the quality of being of the people who work together and you cannot skip over that. But that's also where this whole work becomes a lot more personal than I find that in some places people really want to go to. Well, one of the biggest challenges in change work in institutions is the fact that the leaders in an organization mm -hmm. are, in fact, influencing more than others. They have big amplifiers on them. And if the leaders themselves aren't involved in change and aren't willing to step into change, yeah. it's very hard to do the kind of changes a lot of them want to have happen. And so you're thrown into a coaching role with leaders, whether you contract for that or not, in almost every case. If you're going in and facilitating large-scale change of any sort, it doesn't take long mm -hmm. before you know a whole bunch of things the leader doesn't know. And suddenly you're in a position to kind of provide feedback from the larger field to, to them. If they're not receptive and willing to partner and, and be collaborative with you around this. Yeah. And that's the executive presence piece, but it's so easily also abused like as another trick in the bag versus really doing the work to cultivate the quality of being. So what, what helped you quality, uh, cultivate your quality of being? <laughs> You know? <laughs> oh boy! I told you I'd make it personal too. So, I I had a couple of experiences. Um, one was helping start an art center here in Marin County um, called the Headland Center for the Art. It's an international art center, and the people who were attracted were people uh -huh. who were getting tired of studio art and were really interested in public art going in and collaborating with the community to create something on site that would be meaningful. And I was really deeply moved by the way these artists worked. Mm -hmm. And they were coming in from all over the world and doing stunning things to help uh, communities yeah. uh, rethink or, or deal with certain kinds of issues and things, like, like co-creating murals. Like there's one woman in LA who was working with gangs and she would get them to collaboratively create uh -huh. murals of their history. In fact, she's done a history of Los Angeles mural. That's really quite something. So that I've had those kinds of experiences on the side of my work. But when I turned 50, I just got the hunger to uh, go a little deeper. And I started going on vision quests in nature, you know, where you spend time by yourself and, fast. And I ran into a very uh, amazing Jungian therapist who was doing these as, as kind of a sideline a couple of years. Yeah. And I started working with him doing in-depth work. And the Jungian tradition spends a lot of time honoring the inner processes, almost as mm -hmm. though these archetypes and these ideas are entities. I almost came to a feeling that, you know, this illusion that I'm an individual, I'm actually a whole collection of different sensibilities and different channels and different uh, perceptual modes that it's almost like I can hold meetings with myself 
and experience experiences as a is yeah. similar is kind of an inner mirror of the outer problem of collaboration and the more i started bringing parts of myself back into play that i had left behind for one reason or another you know i, I i'm the oldest son of a minister mm-hmm. so i was pretty programmed to be a good boy you know what one thing that that really resonated the 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 FIRO model um the, the interpersonal relationship orientations about the the inclusion mm-hmm. and the underlying need for significance but there's something about aliveness and and from a you know you you said something about bringing back parts that i had you know yeah. abandoned or forgotten about and there is something the more whole mm-hmm. we become it automatically creates Aliveness and aliveness is a very powerful source for curiosity, and that drives collaboration. But without that, you know, journey, it's 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 hard to see how 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 this can go far. You're you're right on. Hmm. It's one thing to talk about it; it's another thing to actually experience it. Like one one of these things, um, I was struggling with something, and he mm-hmm. says, "Why don't you do a little ceremony where you pretend you're Rumpelstiltskin?" You know, who's the the real angry dwarf who, you know, just is a mean person. And the whole, there's a whole story, mythological story about it. Well, I ended up really getting into that side of myself. And I was, I didn't want to uh, admit that I was angry about things. Like right now, mm-hmm. I am very, very angry about what's happening in our country in terms of the complete disregard for truthfulness and disrespect for people who are public servants and disrespect for people who are have spent years kind of trying to make ends meet and get things working and then just with a little sweep of the hand you know funds get tossed away i mean i, I yeah. come out of, it's like an antithesis to collaboration yeah, well there's all part of me that you know wants to go do something radical. Well, I'm not really oriented that way, but I'm finding that this, um, can I collaborate with this feeling? Do you, do you find David that groups or teams you work with that for the most part, I don't know, maybe at this point there's enough self-selection and the people who approach you. Um, but do you find people mostly come from a place where they already see that being with you know some of those more um difficult feelings um with the edginess that this is all just part of the journey and or do you find yourself trying to advocate for like hey let's embrace this a little bit more perhaps than we've done <laughs> well i'm i'm working in the real world i mean they, <laughs> i'm working right now on with the uc med center merging two organizations and i'm working with another um organization in Minnesota that handles all the wastewater. And, you know, I work with companies that are, you know, trying to go into new markets and things. And Mm -hmm. the norm is not people spending a lot of time on this. You know, they're my colleague, my colleagues are very accepting of these ideas and we're busy networking like crazy to support each other in this work. But practically all of them will tell you that, uh, you know, we're working in a world where, where people are overworked. They are not taking time for reflection. Even at the same time, mindfulness practice is growing. Things like what you're doing are growing. I mean, there's a tremendous hunger for uh-huh. it and receptivity to it. But I wouldn't say that I walk into the rooms and there's a whole bunch of people who are oriented that way. 
But when you make it safe mm-hmm. for people to come out, they love it. They, when, when people are listened to uh-huh. in their wholeness, they love it. So one of the great things about the visuals is, you know, somebody will be talking along or an organization will be talking along. They talk about something that's really tough and I'll be writing it all down. There's a release that happens as people begin to realize, oh my gosh, she actually wrote that down. As people begin talking about the tough parts, the energy starts flowing again. And so I work probably more by just doing it, by just showing up willing to embrace wherever people want to go. And you have a model, and this is part of what drew me to your, uh, for instance, I mean, you have a variety of approaches for different situations uh, that that are relevant in various team contexts. But for instance, when I'm thinking about the the team model, part of what I loved about it is just, um, you know, the the, the why, the who, the The what, and the how. So there is a hierarchy of questions that really gives people guidance. So it's not like, oh my God, I'm scared or I'm angry or I just like, I don't even want to think about interdependency because that means I don't have as much control as I would like to. But so creating a meaningful hierarchy of guidance to address those questions and really organize them into purposeful activity is something that comes with a model. Can you tell me a little bit more? How did you get there? Well, I was introduced to a man named Arthur M. Young in 1976, who was setting out to literally upgrade the scientific paradigm. That was his intention because he believed consciousness was part of nature and needed to be embraced along with objectivity. And in the normal traditional way, you know, people were talking about things that are non-objective or often the field of aesthetics or the field of religion or poetry or whatever, and people were objective or scientists. But scientists themselves, particularly the quantum physicists, got deep into the territory of uh-huh. realizing that the, that the fundamental elements in the universe are uncertain. That if you scratch the surface of an atom, you find fundamental forces. If you try to pin down fundamental forces, they don't even, we used to call them particles when I was studying physics in high school, but they aren't particles. They're not little BBs running around. They're forces, force fields. And in you scratch that and you get light and light is almost impossible to pin down. I mean, they're even questioning the speed of light. So he says, you know, science in its own vocabulary yeah. has readmitted the fact that the orientation, the consciousness of the researcher affects the outcome of experiments at the quantum level. And that in fact, at the bonds level of molecules, light actually makes a difference in when electrons move from one shell to another. Their consciousness has direct impact on matter based on science. So he was working to kind of come up with an integrated version of this, and he called it the theory of process. And so the team performance model is an application of that theory in the realm of teaming. And when I met Alan, I realized he had a model that had come out of social science research that showed that this hierarchy you talk about, uh, people want to know why they're working. Then they want to know who they're working with, and then they want to know what they're doing, and then they want to know how they're going to do it. That progression is actually yeah. a progression of things, one thing being more fundamental than another. Now, what fundamental is, is if you take it away, the other wouldn't exist. So if people don't know why they're together, they don't spend time in the meeting. 
you know, if you walk into a hotel room and you don't know why you're there, you walk out. The second thing, and this is where the new cognitive science is really reinforcing some of these observations, that people's sense of relationship and emotional connectivity probably precedes thinking. That when you walk in a room in a blink, in a, in a, in a very quickly, you're making assessments hmm. about, do you want to be there? Who are you drawn to? Is this something you're going to be wary about? And so the who question as the second question is really, how involved do I want to get with these other people? It's, it's that energetic question. And then the what is really clearly come more of a thinking thing. You know, what are we setting out here as goals? And that kicks in once you've relaxed and you say, okay, well, I'm going to get involved with these yeah. people a little bit. Let's find out what we're doing. And then the how is a bottom line question of time, money, and materials usually. That's what that means. So this progression of going from mm-hmm. something that has no materiality, which is our purpose, to something that has a force to it, liking and not liking, to thinking, uh-huh. which is more bound down to then actual physical things, mirrors the evolutionary process of light going to forces, going to atoms, going to molecules. So it reminds me of the contact cycle and and Gestalt psychotherapy, which really says this, you know, there is a fertile world out of which we we become aware, we become sensitive to something, and then the sensitivity turns into awareness and the awareness turns into, like we're mobilizing energy and then there's ultimately action. But we are very, like in a world where we're so driven to act, it's very tempting to jump into action and not, you know, deal with with the who and the why questions uh, you you said something earlier in an interview like when we like initially in our preparatory call about sometimes people are confused about the difference between purpose and goals and to me that encapsulates it can you what what do you, what do you mean by that can you explain that well this is a podcast so you can't see it graphically but if you can imagine that we live in a world of top line sort of along the top of a piece of paper and bottom line along the bottom the top line consideration is our aspiration and our sense of purpose and our connection to all of consciousness. And it is by definition, not objective, but there's plenty of evidence that when we really open up, there's a lot more going on than we have any idea about and that you can get uh, communications and things, but often it's not clear at first. So purpose is, is usually a word used to point at, sort of the originating impulse. You know, what is it that's calling to us at a very deep level, a reason for being in some ways. And so you end up being called or leaning into something. And then you're using Gestalt language, stuff starts moving. You 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 go to an, an intention to go to Esalen or go listen to the podcast of conscious collaboration or go to a workshop or read a book or something. And then you're starting now to engage with the thinking. What's happening is, is that you're starting to descend into constraint. So you're starting to put words and concepts on what was an energetic movement, which before that was just a hunch or a leaning. So a goal, the word goal points at our intellectual clarity of finding words that are somewhat objective, like uh, the whole idea of of uh, smart goals, you know, they're specific, they're relevant, they're actionable, they're timely. A goal that's stated clearly like that is not the same as this hunch Uh or this 
perception coming out of the cosmos that kind of ignites your initial movement. And so I like to keep the word purpose for that top line sense and goal for that more uh, lower level sense of intellectually now we're being clear. But then the the case for collaboration is, is that if, if in fact the process then moves into, once people have a plan that they like, they want to put money and materials and actual substance to it, going into constraint then puts you in creative tension between Mm -hmm. whatever your purpose was and now this constraint. And there's a lot of, some people call that the grown zone. Arthur called it the turn in the, in the team performance model. It's shown as a V. In theory, U, it's shown as a slider, kind of a U. In my experience, people need to engage with the real situation they're in at a very detailed yeah, level. Yeah. Artists do that. I mean, you have to know how to grind the ink. You have to know the quality of the pay, all this stuff. And only when you've mastered the discipline do you then regain the freedom and bounce back up. So... If you don't have a connection with purpose and you don't have a connection with other people, the juice to go through all that difficulty isn't there. Yeah. So, David, I'm afraid I will have to leave our listeners hungry for more. So um, check out um, the Growth Tools Consultants um, and your work. It's readily available when it's being uh, when you search for it. And thank you so much for <laughs> okay. all these ideas. I think for now, all I really want to say is obviously collaborative, being a collaborative or conscious collaborator really involves a willingness to embrace difference. It involves a readiness to stay with edginess. That is nothing that just happens, but something that needs to get cultivated, which is a whole other thing. But also if you really bring it to the world of teams, that there is a process, that there is an order. And by just rushing into action, into the power and the resource conversations, not only are we depriving ourselves of the energy that comes from connecting with the purpose, we're just not getting things lined up properly. So to not rush it, it's it's another another big piece of of self-management to deal with. So, all right. That's true. Well, I do, I do have a blog at davidsibbett.com if people want to see more. And we also have a Global Learning and Exchange Network, or GLEN. So if you Google glen.grove.com, there's a whole network of us exploring these ideas. Okay, so highly recommended to everyone. It's really great work. For those of you who do not know the work, like you have no idea how little we have touched. So definitely go check it out. Uh, it's been my pleasure. I Maybe maybe there will be more. Maybe our paths cross again. Uh, it's it's really delightful to talk to you. And uh, yeah, so um, stay tuned, everyone, for like just another show uh, next time around, and we'll 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 be back. Sure enough, I hope so. Thank you. Thank you, Yash.